Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Mandy Smith, originally from Australia. She's lead pastor of University Christian Church, a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own fair trade cafe in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's also the author of several books, most recently The Vulnerable Pastor, and she's a friend. I give you Mandy Smith. Mandy, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's good to be back. You are busy right now this season of life, not just caring for the folks and preaching the gospel in the context of your congregation in Cincinnati, but you are working on She Leads. Yes, I sure am. And uh, if you haven't already heard about it, anybody who knows me on social media at all is probably tired of hearing about it. But um, this is a kind of a prophetic work that's growing out of the larger prophetic work of Missio Alliance um, that is longing for a new way of talking about how we can share leadership in the church. So although it's called She Leads, um, it is... uh, a gathering on October 28th that we hope men and women together will take part in. And um, my hope is that, well, the whole way that we shaped it is to set aside some of the us and them kinds of ways of talking about this, some of the world's hierarchies, the world's ways of seeing gender and power, and um, actually dream about how shared leadership of the church might renew our imagination for what calling is and what mission is and how God is restoring all things. And then we can, you know, have a different kind of conversation. I think we can get out of the the anxiety that never brings about good conversation or good leadership and um and see it in in a more scriptural way, a more hopeful way. So yeah, um basically it's a summit on the 28th of October that's the main session is in um Pasadena, but it will be live streamed all over the country. We have 13 regional venues all over the place and also folks can take part by live streaming at home. So there's no excuse to miss out on it and I think it really will be a day worth being part of. People can also watch the recordings afterwards if um they're not able to be there on the day. So um is there like a website people can go to? Yes, missioalliance.org slash she leads. All right. And I'll put in the show notes too. Thank you. Yes, it's going to be a day, quite a day. So let's take a look at these passages together. Yes. The first is Exodus 32 verses 1 through 14. It's a pretty like, I mean, you we, we know from most surveys that American biblical literacy is not tremendously great these days. But if you know anything about the book of Exodus, this is a story one might Mm. know, right? Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, though, even when you come to a story that you think you know to see what's actually happening there. And when I read this for the first time, this time around, um, I was just struck by how God never sounds hateful. He sounds hurt and um, not in a victim-y kind of way, but in a way that someone who deeply loves and has been rejected can sound. And it reminded me of 
kind of a statement that he has earlier on before he even gives these laws that then get smashed in today's story. Um, back in Exodus 19, I'm reminded of how he says to Moses, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so I just hear this deep sense of of love and treasuring these people that he has carried them on eagle's wings and brought them to himself. And, um, and then the obedience pieces in there too, like that's supposed to be the arrangement that I am the good God who has saved you and loves you. And you are the obedient people who trust so much in my love that you will live, live into it in, in practical ways. And, and they just have not got that story. And it's, it's deeply frustrating in the way that I think a person who has parented teenagers might understand. <laughs> yeah, my favorite part of this story is actually not in the lectionary reading, but it's when mm-hmm. it's a little later on in chapter 32. Uh, I think it's in um, verse 24, where Moses basically says to Aaron, like, what the hell happened? He's like, it's the damnedest thing. Like, the people are disruptive. <laughs> I threw this gold in the fire and out came a cat. Yeah. I'm as surprised as you are, Moses. Like, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's interesting that like there's this scholar who writes some stuff on a website for Calvin College on lecturing passage, Doug Bratt. And he says this really interesting description of Aaron. He says he's caught quite literally between a rock and a hard place. Aaron is trapped <laughs> in a glorious past and an uncertain future. And then he says he's also trapped between God's unmistakable presence and Israel's spiritually amnesiac people. Hmm. That's a very interesting image. Friedrich Schleiermacher, one of my favorite theologians, says that all sin is essentially God forgetfulness. Mm. And it wow. seems it seems like you know there's the kind of there's a forgetfulness of the people. And the funny thing is that like they're saying that this is the god; these are the gods that delivered from Egypt. They're actually probably, I would guess, since they're liber- liberated slaves. They're actually making the calf out of the plunders that mm. God gives them from Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, I love that, and I think that's what I've been feeling. I love that way of saying it, though, the God forgetfulness, because that story from chapter 19 that God is saying, this is our story. I love you. I rescue you. You love me. You obey me. And anytime we forget that story or step out of the balance or don't do our part in the story, then then there's where the sin comes. And um, I, it's interesting how that story is getting messed up even in this passage as God says to Moses, um, these people that you brought out of Egypt and, uh, and the people even say, like when Moses doesn't come back as soon as they expect, they say, this fellow who brought us up out of Egypt. So it even becomes like Moses brought up brought us out of Egypt, that they're like losing the story. They're forgetting God's part in the, in this faithfulness. And when God gets annoyed with them, he's like, he says to Moses, these, these people that you brought up out of Egypt, you know, so, um, yeah, the whole thing is just getting askew. And it just reminds me of how many different narratives we weave of our experience. And, um, once you have that set in stone, then, it's very hard to see God as good or why you should obey him. Yeah, and I wonder if God is wants to hear Moses say it. Like, I wonder if God 
wants to hear Moses, who must be feeling tremendous rejection. Mm. And I wonder mm. if God wants to hear him in his place of rejection say, don't reject the people. Just as, you know, Jesus in his rejection asks for God's forgiveness on those who crucify him. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because, you know, we're, off, we're often talking about, is there a perfect will? Or maybe I'm just around college students a lot. So that's what I feel like I'm <laughs> caught in that. Which major should I take, you know? Um, <clears throat> and it's troubling if we think there's only one perfect will of God when we read that God himself seems to change his mind, you know, and in some way that kind of frees us to be like, well, if God is perfect and God could have done this or that, then what does that say for how we make choices? Um, but I think that Moses is actually um, trusting in God's goodness, drawing God to his own goodness. You know, a, a good friend does not accuse you in those times, but reminds you of what you yourself care about and who, you're, who you yourself are. And I, I think that Moses is the least God forgetful in the, in the whole story there, you know, and um, it's a beautiful thing that somehow God engages with human beings in that way. Yeah, and maybe it's in the remembering, because you were talking about like this arrangement of like, look, I've delivered you, now kind of walk in this way. It's not like walk in this way and I'll deliver you. And so Mm. maybe it's sort of through the remembering we're remembered, you know, that that actually Mm. there's a remembering to Christ and one another as as we remember like the rescue. (laughs) Yeah. Remember the, the, the grace in which you stand. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, I've been preaching through these passages in the lectionary and from Exodus, and almost every single story has an opportunity to question God's motives. There's so many ways in which he's not behaving in he's not behaving in so-called nice ways that we might think are um, easy to understand. And you know, the plagues and the Red Sea drowning all the Egyptians. Um, and now the kinds of things that he threatens to do. And um, and so it's interesting for me because the very story is drawing me constantly to trust that he is good, that he is powerful and good, and that it's my job to obey him. And at the same time, these same very same stories um, kind of tempt me to be in a posture of standing in judgment of God, of saying, well, that's not very nice, <laughs> you know. And so it, it's in its very self, these sto- this story is an opportunity to say, well, the people who lived these stories and recorded these stories did so as a way of telling the story of God's faithfulness, even though in hindsight or from our cultural perspective, we might come to it saying, well, that's not really good. Um, and so trusting that this is a story that has been recorded to tell us God's faithfulness, how can I even set aside my own desire to stand in judgment of God and decide that I I am in a position to decide what is good and what is holy and what is right and just and stand in judgment of Him? Um, and so somehow there's a kind of an obedience there that we're, that we're not seeing in this passage, but that we see God calling for that really stretches us. Like we might not be tempted to set up a golden calf that I've never in my mind, in my life thought, yeah, I'm going to burn down all my jewelry and make it into a calf to worship, you know. And so it's easy for us to dismiss that by, but I absolutely am tempted to uh, put myself in a place where I can sit in judgment of God and decide that I'm more merciful than He is or more just than He is. Oh, talking about yesterday. 
All right, Mandy, let's go on to Philippians 4. Yes. This is so interesting because we have this great theological treatise, right? And at the end of the letter, we have uh, Paul just says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. I also ask you, true companion, help these women uh, who have labored side by side with me. I mean, I'm wondering where are these two ladies sitting when they're hearing this letter? Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing not next to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting to be called out in a public way like that. Yeah, and I don't know what was going on. You know, we don't, it, yeah. it, it, Paul doesn't name what's going on. Maybe he assumes everyone knows it. <laughs> Because it's not a large community. Well, yeah, I'm assuming if they're living closely that they would be all, whether they acknowledge it publicly or not, they probably all know about it, yeah. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's a strange thing. And then the next move, it seems even stranger, like this, what seems like maybe pastoral insensitivity or something to call them out. And then he's like, rejoice. Right. <laughs> because everybody rejoice. Like, I just don't, like, I, I mean, I know you probably deal pretty regularly with conflict because you're a pastor in a real congregation. <laughs> like, and I don't usually deal with it in this particular. Yeah, all right, right. stop, stop. Let's rejoice. You know, like, <laughs> so fascinating, right? Yeah, or like getting up on Sunday morning and saying, I urge you and you to get together and get along. Yeah, yeah. And then the means for doing that will be, let's just have a rejoicing time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't remember. I mean, mostly he's dictating his letters, right? So it almost feels like he's getting to the end. This isn't the one where he says, let's see what large letters I write with my own hand, is it? I can't remember. I don't but, think um, so. No, I'm looking. But yeah, yeah, mostly think, yeah. if he's dictating to somebody else to read, it's to write. It's um, it's it's almost like at the end of the letter, he's like, oh, and also this. Oh, and also I haven't said that yet. You know, he's like adding on all these things. Yeah. But, and I wonder, though, is this sort of like one of these things where this is what uh, – that this is like where the rubber meets the road in this alienation yeah. that's happened. And then yet this call to rejoice, like it, that maybe this is another occasion. It's like, the, it's, it, it's, it's like going back to the last text, like remembering the rescue. Mm, and then mm, if you like can remember the joy and the grace that yeah. comes from the deliverance that God has brought you in Christ, mm-hmm. this is yet another, your own brokenness is yet another occasion to rejoice and be remembered. Right. It's interesting because just this week um, I saw somebody comment on a typically kind of controversial issue saying, quoting a passage that was argument, arguing with what someone else had said and then basically saying like, you fools, you can't nitpick or you can't cherry pick scripture. Why would you say this is true? Because here's a scripture passage that says it's not true. And um, in a, you know, very confrontational kind of way. And um, I didn't respond (laughs) because I didn't know how to do so well. But um, it's so funny because we can see where other people cherry pick scripture and don't see how we're doing it ourselves. And, um, you know, these these particular things that look like they're add-ons at the end of a letter, um, are just as much commandments as the kind of moral things that we throw out to one another. And yet rejoicing, being gentle and do not, and not worrying. Um, there's some pretty serious commands that we don't usually take as seriously as, as the usual lists of vices and m- moral commands, you know? And so, um, 
it's a pretty common thing to see Christians who are not being gentle, for example. <laughs> and this particular person was not being gentle. And so I was really tempted to kind of be like, well, speaking of cherry picking scripture, what about gentleness, you know? But uh, wouldn't it be interesting to have this kind of like, just as we go marching around and making making our opinions known about the typical moral issues to include some of these things and like call out anybody who's not gentle or anybody who's worrying too much yeah. or anybody who's not rejoicing. You know? Where is your rejoicing? <laughs> yes. If you're really a Christian. <laughs> and well, then, you know, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing and commendable, if anything is excellent and worthy of praise. I mean, what kind of a movement might we look like if we were really holding ourselves accountable, holding one another accountable to to those kinds of commandments? These are still in uh, the kind of language that is saying this. these are not optional, even though they're kind of tacked on at the end of a letter, they're not optional. Yeah. And, and, and those are kind of things that seem like, I mean, can you prescribe them or can they only like be descriptions of when you're mm. submitted to the spirit like this is these okay. are the things that happen you know Well, speaking of rejoicing, now we come to the parable that is fascinating, right? I mean, this is in Matthew 22. Um, We have the parable of the wedding feast, which seems like a kind of, uh, it seems like something like the, the film, like, Pulp Fiction here, like it's so like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Matthew is the extreme version. The Luke version is very much like, so those people didn't get to go, and some other people went to the wedding instead. This is the <laughs> Quentin Tarantino version yeah. of the parable, right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny though because after reading the um, Exodus thirty-two passage, and God's like, I'm going to do this and that to those people. This chapter, this particular parable, seemed more. Yeah, it just seemed very, very connected to that, like, they've broken my heart one time too many, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's interesting because these people who are at first invited, right, are people that seemingly have, are are maybe the expected people. Mm. You know, these are the, everybody, it's interesting that there's all, they're all, throughout the parable, we see different forms of invitation, but the the first people that are invited, and then, again, the Quentin Tarantino kind of stuff comes, and they're sort of... Yeah. (laughs) Um, But they paid no attention, right, and and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, um, while some seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Mm. Um, And then, you know, he, the king sort of responds. But it is interesting that people meet the invitation with either indifference or hostility. Mm-mm. Yeah, I actually, for the first time, this time reading this, heard Jesus' own pain and frustration because he's just been clearing the temple, you know, and he's coming into Jerusalem and he knows where he's headed. And he's he keeps getting these challenges from the um, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and um, 
the you know the whole chapter beforehand there's just this feeling of like these people just don't get these people who are supposed to be ready and just waiting for the invitation to the wedding don't even recognize when it's right in front of their noses you know and so i love even um the verse the chapter beforehand after he has just been at the temple and you know chucking out all the um folks who are making it into a den of robbers. And it says there in verse 14 of chapter 21, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed him. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And so there's this way in which some folks are just so ready, the the blind and the lame and the children, um, they don't have any power. They're ready to be interrupted. They're ready for it to be um to come when it wants to come in the form in which it it needs to come in and the chief priests and the the teachers have um just just have no eyes to see no ears to hear yeah it's interesting uh robert capon who's i've been reading his book on the parables over the past few weeks just looking at as i looking at these Mithian parables and he says that uh, you know the the folks that are first invited don't lack for socially acceptable good works. They had the, the Mercedes Benz, the Dior gowns, and the sixty five foot yachts. Above all, they had the style to make even a royal wedding look better. But for all that, they were totally lacking in trust. Mm-hmm. And, and the trust, the faith that is the only divinely acceptable quality. And so they take their place in Jesus' cavalcade of winners who lose. They are the Pharisee in the temple, reading off his list of good deeds. They are Zacchaeus with his speech about what an honest crook he is, and they are you and they are me. They are all of us who live in the twin certainties that our good works will earn us the right to attend the Supper of the Lamb, and that God's good nature will absolve us from having to sit through it if we happen to have other plans. Mm-hmm. Why, why the ferocity then? Simply this, since neither they nor we could possibly be wronger about either of these two certainties. Jesus insists on displaying both of them as dead wrong. Salvation is not by works, and the heavenly banquet is not an option. We are saved only by our acceptance of a party already in progress. And God Mm. has paid for that party at the price of his own death. Mm. Good stuff. Well, I think it's interesting, too. You know, it's a bit confusing here when he's just invited people off the streets and then gets upset when somebody didn't come in the right gear doesn't have the right wedding clothes. And I think, you know, some have said, well, the host provided the wedding clothes back in those days. And so, but whatever, regardless of that, obviously the the host, the king did not think that this person was um, responding appropriately. And um, I remember my favorite professor in Bible college would talk about um, almost every story in scripture is a story of God longing for the right response from us. And right response is not... uh, about action, you know, like doing the checking off the list of good deeds, but just the right heart response to him, the the willingness to to respond in kind. And uh, so regardless of what the deal is with the wedding clothes guy and him getting chucked out, the um, the king himself obviously has decided that, that his response is not in kind with the invitation that has been extended to him. And so, again, it's easy to stand in judgment of that king and say, well, maybe the guy just didn't have any nice clothes that day. You know? But um, regardless, the, the king knows the heart, I guess, and the king has extended a, an invitation out of a particular motivation and longs to have um, that invitation received in, in the same kind of spirit. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And, you know, Capon seems to like the the idea of like 
the the sort of people being brought off the street and and being put in royal gowns. And he says, then, you know, there's this guy that stands out. And Capon makes this really interesting point. He says, you know, if he had said anything, anything at all, if he had even for the worst and most stupid of reasons put himself in relationship with the king, he would have been all right. There's mm-hmm. nothing to which a king who operates for no reasons whatsoever cannot give an absolving reply. But because he said nothing, mm-hmm. because he would not bring himself to relate to the king in any way, all the reassurances the king might have given him remain unheard. Yeah, interesting. Because he's speechless, isn't he? Yeah, like even a plea for mercy would have put himself, or, or, or hey, you know, and Capon sort of does all this like internal, like speculative monologue. Like, hey, I'm not going to wear one of these rich people's clothes, or hey, I feel awkward receiving that gift, or, you know, but anything at all <laughs> could have put himself in a relationship with the king. Um, yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's interesting because we can pile on ourselves with all of these things and including the stuff from the Philippians passage. I think we can be like, oh, okay, now I have to rejoice constantly and I have to be gentle and I have to not worry and I have to think about all these nice things and I have to have the right heart towards God. When I find myself going into that uh, chief priest kind of posture in my sermon prep, to listen to the passage sometimes can help me get out of, you know, because when you're kind of looming over a text, whether it's on your screen or in a book, there's a way in which you feel like you are the um, the lab technician dissecting something, you know. Mm. And instead I and I, I find some inspiration for this from the Hebrews 4 passage that talks about the Word of God living and active. And um, while we want to kind of drag it into a lab and kill this living active thing and dissect it and put it in bottles and say we've understood it, it wants to remain as this living active thing that if we really want to study it well, we will we will become uh, field researchers, you know, who are willing to step into its territory and there's a there's a very humbling posture of going to where it comes from in its natural habitat waiting and watching for any moment when it's ready to show itself and being ready for the chase that's an incredibly risky thing to open ourselves up to because we don't know if that transformation will be done in time that we can explain it by sunday Mm. Um, and so i think we have an interesting opportunity to learn this in a very real way in our very experience of preparing a sermon Amen to that, Mandy. And thank you for being on the podcast with me this week. It has been a joy. Thank you for having me. Pleasure was all mine. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Mandy for coming on the podcast and check out the information about She Leads over at missioalliance.org. And thanks to you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.